listening to the VBAC Link Podcast, and this is special episode number 14, and we are so excited for today's episode. We have Dr. Stuart Fishbein and midwife Bliss Young, and we cannot wait to hear what they have to say. You are tuned in to the VBAC Link Podcast with Julie Francom and Megan Heaton, VBAC moms, doulas, and educators here to help you get inspired for birth after having a C-section. Together, they have created a robust VBAC preparation course along with this uplifting podcast for women who are preparing for their VBAC. Although these episodes are VBAC specific, they encourage all expectant moms to listen and educate themselves on how to avoid a cesarean from the get-go. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. Here are your hosts, Julie and Megan. Ladies, I cannot tell you how giddy excited I have been for the last couple weeks since we know that <laughs> knew that these guys were going to record with us. But we have some amazing special guests today. We have Dr. Stuart Fishbein and midwife Bliss Young. And we want to share a little bit about them before we get into the questions that all of you guys have asked on our social media platforms. Absolutely. And when Megan says we're excited, like we are really excited. My like, face is hot right now because I'm so excited. <laughs> and Megan was texting me last night at 11 o'clock in all caps, total fangirling out over here. So um, Dr. Stu and Midwife Bliss are pretty amazing. And we know that you are going to love them just as much as we do. But before we get into it, um, like Megan said, I'm gonna just going to read their bio so you can know just how legit they really are. First up, Dr. Stu, Stuart Fishbein, MD, is a fellow of the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and you know how much we love ACOG over here at the VBAC link. He's a published author of the book Fearless Pregnancy, Wisdom and Reassurance from a Doctor, a Midwife and a Mom. And he has peer-reviewed papers, Home Birth with an Obstetrician, a series of 135 out-of-hospital births and breach birth at home, outcomes of 60 breach and 109 cephalic planned home and birth center births. Dr. Stu is a lecturer and advocate who now works directly with home birthing midwives. His website is www.birthinginstincts.com, and his podcast is Dr. Stu's Podcast. Seriously, guys, you Go need to just subscribe. subscribe right now to their podcast. And the web- yeah, the website for his podcast is drstuspodcast.com. He has an international following. He offers hope for women who cannot find supportive practitioners for VBAC and twin and breach deliveries. Guys, this is the home birth OB. He is located in California. So if you are in California hoping for a VBAC, especially if you have any special circumstance like um, after multiple cesareans, twins or breach presentation, run to him, run, <laughs> go find him. Um, he, he will help you go to that website. Bliss, Midwife Bliss, um, we, we really love them. If you haven't had love a chance her. to hear their, their podcast, guys, really go and give them a listen because this duo is on point. They're on fire and they talk about all of the real topics in birth. So um, his partner on the podcast is Bliss Young and she is an LM and CPM. And she has been involved in the natural birth world since the birth of her first son in 1992. 
first as an advocate and then as an educator. She is a mother of three children, and all of her pregnancies were supported by midwives, two of which were triumphant, empowering home births. (laughs) In 2006, Bliss co-founded the Sanctuary Birth and Family Wellness Center. This was the culmination of all of her previous experience as a natural birth advocate, educator, and environmentalist. The sanctuary was the first of its kind, a full-spectrum center where midwives, doctors, and other holistic practitioners collaborated to provide thousands of Los Angeles families care during the prenatal and postpartum periods. Bliss closed the sanctuary in 2015 to pursue her long-held dream of becoming a midwife and care for her clients in an intimate home birth practice similar to the way she was cared for during her pregnancies. I think that's kind of why Megan and I both became that's doulas, exactly too. exactly why I'm a doula. Like, we yeah. needed to provide that care just like the, mm-hmm. we had been cared for. Anyways, going on. <laughs> Currently, Bliss, a.k.a. Birthing Bliss, supports families on their journey as a birth center educator, placenta encapsulator, and a natural birth and family consultant and home birth midwife. She is also co-founder of Just Placentas, a company servicing all of Southern California and placenta encapsulation and other postpartum services. And... As you know, she is a co-host on the Dr. Sue's podcast. And she has a class. Don't you have a class that you're doing? Don't you have a class? Yeah. Cur- yeah. She yeah. has a class that she's doing, which I want to just fly out because I know you're not doing it like online and everything yet, but I just want to fly there just to take your class. Yeah. It's coming online. It is? <gasps> yeah. Yay. Great. Well, yes. I'll be one of those first registering. Oh, did you put it in yeah, there? No, there's a little bit more. Oh, well, I'm just getting ahead <laughs> of I just want to read other, read more of Bliss over here. Okay. <laughs> because I love this and I think it's so important. At the heart of all Bliss's work is a deep-rooted belief in the brilliant design of our bodies, the symbiotic relationship between baby and mother, the power of the human spirit, and the richness that honoring birth and the right as a rite of passage and re- passage and resurrecting lost traditions can bring to our high-tech, low-touch lives. And love isn't it. that true? I love, I love that language. Yeah. It is so beautiful. If I'm not mistaken, Midwife Bliss's website is Birthing Bliss. Dot com Is that right? And Bliss is spelled with a Y. So B-L-Y-S-S, birthingbliss.com. And that's where you can find her. Yay. Just to make it more complicated, I had to put a Y in there. Hey, I love that's it. That's okay. Hey, we're in Utah. So like we have all sorts of weird names over here. Yep. <laughs> I love it. You're unique. Awesome. Well, we will get started. I did read through these questions. And one of the things that I wanted to say that I thought we could kind of um let people know is that, of course, there's a little bit more that we need to take into consideration when we have a uterus that's already had a scar, right. that has a scar, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there, there's a small percentage of a uterine rupture that we need to be aware of, and we need to know what are the signs and symptoms that we would need to take a different course of action. But besides that, I believe that, and and Dr. Stu can speak for himself because we don't always practice together. I believe that we treat VBACs just like any other mom who's laboring. So a lot of these questions, yeah, could go into a category that you could ask about a woman who is having her first baby. I don't really think that we need to differentiate between those. Um, But I do think that in terms of preparation, there are some special considerations for moms who have had a previous cesarean. And probably the biggest one that I would point to is the trauma. 
Yes. And mm-hmm, <laughs> giving space, <laughs> giving space to and processing the trauma and really helping these moms have a provider that really believes in them, I think is one of the biggest factors to them having mm-hmm. success. Absolutely. So that's one I wanted to say before you started down the question. Absolutely. And, you know, that's actually the very first. So we have an online class that we provide for VBAC prep. And that's the very first section is mentally preparing and physically preparing because there's so much that goes into that. So I love that you started out with that. Yeah. A lot of these women that come come searching for VBAC and realize that there's another way besides a repeat cesarean are processing a lot of trauma. And a lot of them realize that their cesarean might have been prevented had they known better, had a different provider, prepared differently, Mm -hmm. um, and things like that. And processing that and realizing that is heavy, and it's really important um, to do before before we we feel like here, um, before getting into anything else preparation-wise. Yeah. One of the best things I ever, like a distinction that one of my VBAC moms made for me, and I've passed it on as I've cared for other VBAC moms, is, you know, for her, the kind of um, justification, or I can't find the right word for it, but she basically said that that statement that we hear so often of, yeah, you have trauma from this, or you're not happy about how your birth went, but thank God your baby is healthy. Mm, And she said it, yeah, she said it felt so invalidating for her, because yes, she also was happy, of course, that her baby was safe. But at the same time, she had this experience and this trauma that wasn't being acknowledged and she felt like was just really being kind of brushed away. Yeah. And so, you know, I think really giving women that space to be able to say, yes, that's valid. It's yeah. valid how you feel. And it is an, a really important part of the process in having a successful vaginal delivery, this this go around. Yeah, you know, I tend to be a lightning rod for stories. Um, it's almost like I have my own personal ICANN meeting pretty much almost every day, uh, one-on-one. I get, I get contacted or just today driving, I'm in San Diego today and just driving down here. Um, uh, I talked to two people on the phone, both of whom, Liz really just touched on it, is that they both have, are wanting to have VBACs with their second birth and they're seeing, they were seeing practitioners who are encouraging them to be induced for this reason or that reason. And they both have been told the same thing that the bliss just mentioned that, that we, you know, we, you know, if you end up with a repeat cesarean, at least you'll have a, you know, you're going to have a healthy baby. And it, it, you know, that's obviously it's very important, but the, the thing is, is that I know it's a cliche, but it's not just about the destination. It's about the journey as well. And, and one of the things that we're not taught in medical school and residency program is that, that, the value of the process. I mean, we're, we're very much mechanical in the OB world and our job is to get the baby out and head it to the pediatric department and then we're done with it. So if if we can get somebody induced early, if we can uh, decide to do a C-section sooner than we should, there's a lot of incentives to, to, to do that and to not keep the process, you know, and think about, you know, the process and think about the person, you know, there's another cliche, which we talk about all the time, Melissa and I have said it many times, is that, you know, the uh, baby is the candy and the mother's the wrapper. I don't know if you've heard that one, but mm-hmm. when the baby comes out, the mother just gets basically tossed aside and her experience is really not important. 
soothing medical professionals that are taking care of her at the, in the hospital yeah. setting, especially in today's world where you have a shift mentality and a lot of people are being taken care of by people they didn't know. And you guys mentioned earlier the importance of feeling safe and feeling secure in whatever setting you're in, whether that's at home or in the hospital, because as Bliss knows, I get off on the mammalian track and you talk about mammals and they just don't labor well when they're anxious. Yep. And when the doctor or the health professional is anxious and they're projecting their anxiety onto the, onto the mom that, and the family, then that stuff is brewing for weeks, if not months. And it, who knows what it's actually doing inside, but it's certainly not going to lead to the likelihood of or it's going to diminish the likelihood of a successful labor. Yeah, absolutely. We talk about that. You know, we go over that a lot. Like birth is very instinctual and very primal and it operates at a very like fundamental core level. And whenever mom feels threatened or anxious or, or anything like that, it literally can stall or stop labor from progressing or even starting. Yeah, when exactly. And when I was trying to be back with my first baby, my doctor came in and told my husband to tell me that I needed to wake up and smell the coffee because it wasn't happening for me. And that that was the last I, the last contraction I remember feeling was right before then. My body just shut off. Like, I just stopped. Mm-hmm. And because I just didn't feel safe anymore or protected or supported. And, and yeah, it's so impo- – it's very powerful. Mm-hmm. Which is something that we love so much about you guys because, like – I don't even know you. I've just listened to like a million of your podcasts <laughs> and I feel so safe with you right now. I'm like, you could fly here right now and deliver my baby because just so much about you guys, you provide so much comfort and support already. So I'm sure all of your clients can feel that from you. Absolutely. Yeah. And I just would like to say that, uh, you know, I mean, the introduction was great that which one of you is uh, Julie? Which one's Megan? I'm Julie and I'm <laughs> Megan. <laughs> okay, great. All right. So Julie was reading the introduction and she was talking about how you know, if you have a breach, if you have twins, if you have a V-back, you have all these other things, just come down to Southern California and I'll take care of it. But I'm not a cowboy, all right? Even yeah, though I right. do things that most of my colleagues in the profession do, I also say no to people sometimes. And I also, you know, I look at things differently. I don't look just because someone has, uh, say, chronic hypertension. Right. That they can't have a home birth. Why can't they have a home birth? The, the labor is just the labor. I mean, if her blood pressure gets out of control, yeah, then she has to go to the hospital. But why do you need to be labored in the hospital or induced early if everything is fine? But I'm, but it's not, you know, this isn't for everybody. Yeah, for sure. Very, you need to find a support, a supportive team or a supportive practitioner who's willing to be able to say yes and no and, and give you it with what we call a true informed consent so that you have the right to choose which way to go and to do what's reasonable. Our ethical obligation is to give you reasonable choices and then support your informed decision-making. And sometimes there are things that aren't reasonable. Like, for instance, an example that I use all the time is if a woman has a breech baby, but she has a placenta previa, okay, well, you know, a, a yeah. natural delivery is not, it's not, not an, an option, option for you. Yeah. All right. Now, she could say, well, I want one, and I'm not going to have a C-section. And, and, and then you have the right to that, refuse that. Yeah. Yeah, but I would, I would all, I mean, that's never going to happen because we have a good communication with our patients. No, it's, it's our, our communication is such that we develop a trust over the period of time. Sometimes I don't meet people until I'm actually called to their house by a midwife to come uh, assist with a vacuum or something like that. Mm-hmm. But even then, the midwives and stuff, and, and because I'm sort of known that people have an understanding. And then when I'm sitting there, as long as the baby isn't in trouble, I will explain to them, here's what's going to happen. Here's how we're going to do it. Here's yeah. what's going to the baby's head's going to look like this. It's not going to be a problem. It'll be better in 12 hours. But I go through all this stuff. 
And I say, I'm going to touch you now. Is that okay? And I ask permission. Perfect. And I do all the things that, that the midwives have taught me that I never really learned in residency program. They don't teach mm-hmm. this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, and one of the things that we go over a lot, too, in our classes is finding a provider who who naturally like has a natural tendency to treat his patients the way that you want to be treated. And that way you'll have a lot better time when you birth because you're not having to ask them to do anything that they're not that they're not comfortable with or that they're not prepared for or that they don't know how to do. And so interviewing providers and interview as many as you need to with um, these women and find the provider that whose who's natural ways of treating his clients are the ways that you want to be treated. And sometimes in a community, there's nobody. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And that's what's and so if, hard. And if it's important to you, if it's important to you, then you have to drive a hundred yeah. miles. Or stand up yeah, for yourself and fight really yeah. hard. Yeah. I have I have a client from Russia. Um, she's flying here in two weeks. Um, she's coming all the way to Salt Lake City, Utah, to have her baby. We had another client from we Russia. We have another Russian client. Yeah. Oh. Um, and um, <laughs> that's awesome. so yeah, it's just it's crazy. Like sometimes you have to go far far distances, and sometimes you've got them right there. You just have to search. You just yeah. have to find them. So it's tricky. And maybe this company is not going to pay for it. Yeah. My co- did you say my company's not going to pay for it? And maybe your insurance company. Oh, insurance. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, maybe that's just not like you you can't rely on them to be the ones who support some of these decisions that are outside mm-hmm. of the standards of care. You might have to really figure out how to get creative around that area. Yep, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. So in the beginning, Bliss, you talked about kind of noticing the signs. And I know that's one of the questions that we got on our Instagram, I believe. What birthing at home for both of you guys, you know, what signs for a VBAC mom are signs enough where you talk about different care? Or can, a different... you, can you add? Yeah, say that again. I didn't really understand that. Say what you're saying. Yeah. Again. Sorry. So one of the questions on our Instagram was, what are the signs of like uterine rupture that at, when you're at home that you look for and would transfer care or talk about a different plan of action? Okay. Quite simply, um, most, well, some uterine ruptures have no prodrome. You don't have any warning that they're coming. Right. So there's nothing you can do about those. But before we get into what what you can feel, just let's re- review the numbers real briefly so that people have a realistic yeah, viewpoint. Because I'm sure that, that if, if a doctor doesn't want to do a VBAC, he'll find a reason not to do a VBAC. He'll use the star thickness or the pregnancy interval or, or whatever. They'll use something to try to talk you out of it or your baby's too big or the, this kind of thing. So mm-hmm. we can get into that in a little bit. So that, but when, when there are signs, the most common sign you would feel is that there'd be increasing pain superpubically that doesn't go away between contractions. So yep. it's a little different, different, it's a different quality of pain and, or, or, or uh, sensation, yeah, maybe sensation that, you know, it's, it's pain. It's really, it's, it's becoming uncomfortable. I start to have variables when you didn't have them before. So the baby's heart rate, you might see heart rate decelerations. Rarely, uh, you might find excessive bleeding, um, but that's usually not a sign of, uh, uh, I mean, that's a sign of true rupture. So, um, so yeah, so loss um, of station. Yeah, so those are the things you want, those are the things you watch for. But again, if you're not augmenting someone, if someone doesn't have an epidural where they don't have sensation, 
if you're not out, they're not on Pitocin. These things are, are very unlikely to happen. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I was going to get to the numbers. The numbers are such that the quoted risk of uterine rupture, which is, again, that crappy word that sounds like a tire blowing out of the freeway, is about, is about 1 in 200. But um, only about 5 to 16%, and even the one, one study I said is at 3%, but let's just even take 16% of those ruptures will result in an outcome that the baby is, is damaged or dead. Okay, so that's one. In, that's about one in six. So the actual risk is about one in six times one in two hundred, or one in twelve hundred, up to about one in four thousand. Yep. So those are the those those are the risks. They're not the one in two hundred or the two percent. Or I actually had someone tell some woman that she had a thirty percent chance of rupture. Oh, we've had somebody Whoa. say fifty percent. We have. Oh yeah, Jess, our our fifty copy editor. Her her doctor told her that if she tries to be back, she'll have a she has a fifty percent chance of rupture, and she will die. Yeah. Wow. Pretty scary. Oh, yeah. And by the way, a maternal mortality from uterine rupture is, is extremely rare. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> we were just talking about that. Yeah. <laughs> doctors, it's not wrong on, on, on so many accounts, I don't even know where to begin on that. I, am, I know. So, <laughs> yeah. And see, that, that's the kind of thing where even if someone has a classical cesarean scar, the risk of rupture isn't 50%. Yep. So um, I don't know where they come up with those sorts of numbers. Yeah. I think it's just a lot like um, it's just their comfort level and what they're familiar with and what they know and what they understand. And and I think a lot of these doctors, because she had a premature cesarean, and so that's kind of why he was a little, well, a lot more fear-based. Um, you know, her cesarean what oh. happened, I think, around 32 weeks, which we still know that, like, you, st- you can still attempt to be back and still have a really good chance of having a successful one. But a yeah, lot of these providers just don't do it. Yeah, and another problem is you can't really find out what somebody's C-section rate is. I mean, they're supposed to be hospital. You can find out your hospital C-section yeah. rate. Mm-hmm. But they can vary dramatically between uh, different physicians. So you really don't know. And, and uh, you know, you'd like to think that physicians are honest. You'd like to think that they're going to tell you the truth. But if they have a high C-section rate and, and it's a competitive world, they're not going to. If they're, yeah. you know, and if you're HMO, you don't really have a choice anyway. So and There's mm-hmm. not transparency um, on the physician level. Mm-hmm. So Bliss was talking briefly about the fact that, you know, your insurance may not pay for it. Yep. So Liz, why don't you elaborate on that? Because that's such that you you do that point so well. Um, are you talking about the wedding? Yeah. I love your analogy. The great I, analogy. I you know I just I'm so saddened sometimes when people talk to me about that they're that they really want this option and especially VBACs. I just you know I have a very special tender place in my heart for VBACs because mm-hmm. I overcame something from my first to second birth that wasn't a cesarean, but you know, it felt like I had been led to mistrust my body. And then I had a triumphant second delivery. So I really understand how that feels when a woman is able to reclaim her body Mm -hmm. and have a vaginal delivery. But you know, just in general, in terms of limiting your options based on what your insurance will pay for, you know, it, we think about, the delivery of our baby and or something like a wedding, you know, where it's this really special day. And I see that women will or families will spend thousands and thousands of dollars and, you know, put it on a credit card and, you know, just figure out whatever they need to do to have this beautiful wedding. But somehow when it comes to the birth of their baby, they turn over all their power to this insurance company, Mm. you know. Mm-hmm. And so I used to say, we used to do this talk at the sanctuary and I used to say, you know, what if we had wedding insurance and you paid every year into this insurance for your wedding and then 
you know, when the wedding came, they selected where you went and you didn't like it. And they put you in a dress that made you look terrible. And the food was horrible and the music was horrible. And they invited all these people you didn't want to be there. But it's a network. (laughs) (laughs) Would you really let that insurance company, because it was paid for, dictate how your wedding day was? But somehow, that's a good analogy. Yeah, you just let it all go. Yeah, that is, that's amazing. I love that. And it's mm-hmm. it's so true. It is so true. Well, and we get that, too, a lot about um, hiring a doula. You know, oh, I can't have hi- hire a doula. It's too expensive. And and we get yeah. that a lot because people don't, they don't expect to pay out of pocket for their births. When you're right, it's just perceived completely differently. And when it should be the one of the biggest days of your life. I had I had three VBACs at home. And my, my first was a... a necessary unnecessary and I don't know I'm still really uncertain about that to be honest with you but um but my you better believe my VBACs at home we paid out of pocket for a midwife no we put our first two times it was put on a credit card I had a doula I had a birth photographer I had a <laughs> videographer my first VBAC I had two photographers there because <laughs> right like I it was gonna be documented because it was so important to me and we sold things on eBay and we um you know sold our couches and I did I did some babysitting just to bring in the money and and doulas obviously I hired doulas and because it was so important to me to not only have the experience that I wanted and that I deserved, but I wanted it documented and I wanted it to, to be able to remember it well and look back on it fondly. And and we see that, especially in Utah, I think we have this culture where women just don't, I, well, I don't know, it's probably, I feel like it's just a national thing, but I think it was Utah, we, we kind of tend to be on the cheap side just culturally and <laughs> women don't see the value in that. And, and it's hard because... Um, it's hard to shift that mindset and to see like you are important, you are worth it. What if you what if you could have everything you wanted and what if you knew you could be treated differently? Would you think about how to find the way to make that work financially? And I think if there's just that mindset shift, a lot of people would. Oh, I yeah. love that. And if you realize, you know, if you have to pay ten thousand dollars out of pocket to or five thousand or whatever, to get the to at least have the opportunity and you always have the hospital as a backup, but you know, two, three years from now, that, that $5,000 isn't going to mean anything. Yeah, nothing. It's but not that experience is with you forever. So, yeah. Really? Women yeah. may not, you know, they may not remember the names of their children when they're 80 years old, but they'll remember <laughs> the birth of them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, in my cesarean baby, we had some complications and out of pocket, I paid almost 10 grand for him. And none of my home births, midwife, doula, photography and videography included cost my, over seven. My cesarean births in hospital were also more expensive than my birth yeah. center birth. Anyways, yeah. so can you get to questions? Yeah, let's keep going. <laughs> we should, let's get to some of the questions because you yeah. guys have some really good questions. Yes. Why don't you pick one? Pick one, and let's do it. So let's yeah. do let's do uh, Lauren. She was on Facebook. She is was our very first question, and she said that she has um, some uterine abnormalities. Um, like a bicornic uterus or, you know, separate uterus or, you know, all of those. They want to know how that impacts VBAC. She's had two previous cesareans due to a breech presentation because of her uterine abnormality. Is that the heart-shaped uterus? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you can have a septate uterus, you can have a unicornate uterus, you can have a, you can have a double uterus. Yeah, two Mm -hmm. separate Uh, uteruses. mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. As far as the, the biggest problem with the, with a person with an abnormal uterine shape or, or an anomaly is 
couple things. One is malpresentation, as, as this woman experienced because her two babies were breached. And two is sometimes um, retained placenta is, mm. is more common when women that have a septum, uh, that sort of thing. Also, is, it can preterm labor and growth restriction depending on the type of anomaly of the uterus. Now, say you get to term and your baby is head down, or if it's breached in my vicinity, but if it's head down, then the chance of VBAC for that person is, is really high. I mean, it's, it's, there might be a slightly greater risk of cesarean section, but not a, not a statistically significant risk. You know, and then success rate for, for home birth VBACs, if you look at the MANA stats or even, or even my own stats, which are not enough to make statistical significance in, my, in my couple of papers that I put out, but the MANA stats show that it's about a 93% success rate yeah. for VBACs with, in the midwifery model. Whereas in the hospital model, it can be as low as 17% up to the 50s or 60%, but it's not very high. And that's partly because of the model by which you're cared for. So the numbers that I'm sort of quoting and the success rates I'm quoting are, again, assuming that you have a supportive practitioner in a supportive environment. Every VBAC is going to have diminished chance of success in a restrictive or tense environment. But unicorn uterus or septate uterus um, is not a contraindication to VBAC. And it's not a contraindication to breach delivery if somebody knows how to do a breach VBAC, too. Right. So that, that would, I mean, so Lauren, that would be my answer to your question is that no, it's not a contraindication and that if you have the right practitioner, um, you can certainly try to labor and your risk of rupture is really not much more significant than a woman who has a normal shape uterus. Good answer. So I want to kind of spin off that really quick. Yeah. It's not a question, but I've had a client myself that had two C-sections and her baby was breached at 37 weeks. And the doctor said absolutely could not turn the baby externally because her risk of you rupture was so, you know, increase, increase, increasingly. It was an increased, <laughs> increased risk of rupture yeah, doing so the high. external version. So would you agree with that or would you disagree no. with that? Okay. No. No, even an ACOG statement on uh, on um, external version and breach delivery says that a previous uterine scar is not a contraindication to uh, attempting a, a external version. Yeah. Now, actually, if we obviously had more breach choices, then then there would be no reason to do an external version. Mm-hmm. Right. On the, uh, I mean, the only reason, the main reason that people try an external version, which can sometimes be very uncomfortable, and depending on the woman and you know her parity and you know, certain other factors can be, uh, you know, their success rate can not be very good is the only reason they do it because the, the alternative is a cesarean in, you know, 95% of locations in the country. Okay. Well, that's good to know. But, but again, again, if, uh, one of the things I would tell people to do when they, when they're hearing something from their physician that just sort of rocks the common sense boat mm-hmm. and doesn't sort of make sense, look into it. Yep. ACOG has a lot, I mean, I think you can just go Google some of the ACOG clinical guidelines or practice practice guidelines or clinical opinions or whatever they call them. And you can find and you can read through and they summarize them at the end on level A, B and C evidence, level A being great evidence, level C being what's called consensus opinion. The problem with consensus uh, with ACOG's guidelines is that about two thirds of them are consensus opinion because they don't really have any data on them. And when you get a bunch of academics together who don't like VBAC or don't like home birth or don't like breach birth, of course, their consensus opinion is going to be, well, we're not going to do, we're not going to. Not advise Yeah. But much to their credit lately, they're starting to change their tune. Their most recent VBAC guideline paper said that if any, if your hospital can do labor and delivery, your hospital can do VBAC. Yes. yes. That's a huge thing from the immediately available 
fiasco that went on and the, and the reason. So any hospital that's doing labor and delivery should be able to do a VBAC. And it's just, when they say they can't, or they say well, our, our insurance company won't let them, it's just a cowardly excuse because yeah. that you know maybe it's true, but they need to fight for they need to fight for your right because most surgical emergencies in labor and delivery have nothing to do with a previous uterine scar. Absolutely, they have to do with fetal distress or placental abruption or cord prolapse. And if they can handle those, they can certainly handle the the one in twelve hundred. I mean, say a hospital does twenty VBACs a year, fifty VBACs a year, it'll take them. Oh, do the math. Take him twenty five years to have a rupture. Yeah, yep. it's pretty powerful. I love when he does. Yeah, <laughs> I know, right? I'm like this a huge statistics She's gun- junkie and data junkie, and so like those things, like I have the number. Yeah, I, she loves yeah. numbers. Yep, <laughs> I love that. Hey, and fifty V backs a year at two thousand. Yeah, is would that be forty years actually? Right. Oh, look at oh. oh what yeah. So say that again. What was the, what was the numbers again that you said? So two thousand one in two thousand ru- um, ruptures are catastrophic, and they do fifty VBACs a year. Wouldn't that be? Yeah, that's one in twenty years. years. But I was yeah. using the twelve hundred. I was using the twelve hundred number. Oh, right, 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 yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. So that would be. Yeah. Which would be what twenty four years. Right. Yeah. Right. Anyways, right, me, right. me and you should sit down and just talk one day. I would love to have lunch with you. <laughs> let's, talk, let's talk astrology and astronomy. Right? Yes. All right, what's, right, so who's next? So let's... Well, oh, go ahead. Just to make a suggestion? Yes. Um, so there was another um, woman. Let's see where it is. Um, what's the likelihood that a baby would flip? And is it, and is it reasonable to even give it a shot for a, a VBA to see. How do you guys say that? Be back, back after, after two, two cesareans. cesareans. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry. You, know, you need to know the lingo. So um, I would say it's very unlikely for a baby to slip um, head down from a breech position in labor. It doesn't mean it's impossible. Oh, with a uterine septum, it's almost never going to happen. Mm. So yeah. Liz, Liz is right on. And even, even trying an external version on a woman with a uterine septum when the baby's head is up in one horn and the placenta is in the other horn, uh, and they're in a frank breach position, that, that's almost futile um, to do that, especially if the woman is a primate or, um, or what we call, what First I call a functional primate, yeah. or even a, a woman who's never labored before. So. Right, that's true. And then, yeah, Napoleon said, what did she say? Oh, she was just talking about that she's planning on a home birth after two cesareans, um, supported by a midwife and a doula. And research suggests home birth is a reasonable, reasonable and safe option for lowless women. And she wants to know, in reality, what identifies low risk? Well, I thought I thought her question was hilarious because she says uh, it seems like everybody's high risk, too old, overweight, overdue. Yeah. Just maybe. Right. Yeah, it does. It does, though. <laughs> well, when you when, immediately immediately when you label someone high risk, you make them high risk. Yep. Mm-hmm. Because now you're plant you planted seeds of uh, doubt of doubt yeah. inside mm-hmm. their head. So I would say that you know what? How do you define high risk? I mean, is one in twelve hundred high risk? Nope. I, I doesn't seem high risk to me, but. You know, um, again, I mean, we do a lot of things in our life that are a lot more dangerous than that and don't consider them high risk. So, you know, I, I think the term high risk is, is bandied about way too much. Mm-hmm. And it's based on some false or some just some, some random random numbers that they come up with. Uh, Bliss has heard this before. I mean, she knows everything that I say comes out of my mouth. <laughs> the numbers like 24, 35, 42. I mean, 
24 hours of ruptured membranes, where did that come from? Yeah. Or some people are saying 18 hours. I mean, there, there's no science on that. I mean, bacteria don't suddenly look at each other and go, hey, Ralph, it's time to start multiplying. <laughs> Ralph, I love it. I'm going to name my bacteria. It's true. Ralph. And I was told after 18 hours, that was my number. Yeah. yeah. You know, again, so these numbers, there are papers that come out, but they're, they're, they're not repetitive. They're, they don't, I mean, any midwife worth her salt has had women with ruptured membranes sometimes two, three, four days. Yep. And as long as you're not sticking your fingers in there, and as long as, you know, their GBS might be negative or, you know, that's another issue. I think that was that's one That's another question. About. That's another question. Yep. Yeah, I can get to that right now. I mean, if someone has a ruptured membrane with GBS and they don't go into labor within a certain period of time, it's not unreasonable to give them the pros and cons of antibiotics and then let them make that decision, all right? We don't force people to have antibiotics. We would watch for fetal tachycardia or fever, and at that point, you know, then, then you're already behind the eight ball. So ideally, you'd like to see someone go into labor sooner. But again, if they're still leaking, if there's no vaginal exams, the likelihood of them getting... Group B strep sepsis or something on the baby is it's still not very high. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing about antibiotics that I like to say is that if I was going to give antibiotics to, to a woman, I think it's much better to give a woman antibiotics at home than in the hospital. And the reason being is because at home, the baby's still going to be born into their own environment and mom's and dad's bacteria and, and, and uh, the dog's bacteria and the sibling's bacteria. We're in the hospital. They're going to go to the nursery for observation like they generally do, and they're going to be exposed to different bacteria unless they do these vaginal seeding, which isn't really catching on universally yet, mm-hmm. where you take a swab of mom's vaginal bacteria before yeah. the C-section, and then you... Um, no, I was just agreeing. Oh, yeah, seeding, 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 vaginal yeah. seeding, yeah, yeah, seeding. Right. So um, I, I don't consider ruptured membrane something that, again, would cause me to immediately say, so you have to change your plan. You individualize your care in the midwifery model. Yep. And you look at every patient, and you look at their history, you look at the, their desires, you look at their backup situation, their transport situation, that sort of thing. You take it all into account, right? Now, there are some women in pregnancy who don't want to do a GBS culture, mm-hmm. all right? Ignorance is bliss. The other, the other spelling of bliss. Hi, bliss. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but the reason that we, that at least I still encourage people to do it is because for any reason, if that baby gets transferred to the hospital during labor or after, and you don't have a GBS culture on the chart. They're going to give it antibiotics. They're going to treat it as GBS positive, yep. right? And they're also going to think you're irresponsible. Yep. And they're going to have that mentality that like, oh, you know, here's another one of those home birth crazy people, mm. blah, blah, blah. That just happened right. to me in January. I had a client like that. Um, I mean, anyways, never mind. Can it's I not the time. say something of a low risk? Yes. So um, I think there's a a lot of different factors that go into that question. One being, what are the state laws? Mm -hmm. Because there are things that I would consider low risk and that I feel very comfortable with, but that are against the law. And I'm not Mm -hmm. going to go to jail. Mm -hmm. Right. We want you to still be birthing. (laughs) That's a very good point. Yeah. Much as I believe in a woman's right to choose, I have to draw the line at what what the law is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second is finding a provider that you know. Obviously, Doctor Stu feels very comfortable with things that other providers may not necessarily feel comfortable with. Right. And so I think it's really important, as you said in the beginning of the show, 
to find a provider that takes the risk that you have and feels like they can walk that path with you and mm-hmm. be supportive. Um, I definitely agree with what Dr. Stu was saying about informed consent. And, you know, I, I had a client that was GBS positive, declining antibiotics and had a very long rupture. And we continued to walk that journey together and, and I kept giving informed consent and kept giving informed consent. And he had such trust and faith that it actually stretched my comfort level. And we had to continually talk about, you know, where we were in this dance. But that is, to me, that feels like what our job is, is Mm -hmm. to give them information about the pros and cons and let them decide for themselves. Yep. And I think if you take a statistic, I'm picking an arbitrary number, and, and, you know, there's a 94% chance of success and a 4% chance that something could go really wrong. One family might look at that and say, wow, 94%, this is me. That sounds pretty good statistic. And yeah. one person might say 4% makes me really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I need to minimize that. So I think that's where you have to have the ability, given who you surround yourself with and who your provider is, to be able to say this is my choice and it's being supported. So it is arbitrary in a lot of ways, except for when it comes to what the law is. Yeah, right. that makes sense. And I love that. Yeah. And and every state has their own laws. Like in the mm-hmm. South, like it's legal, to, like in lots of places in the South, I think in Washington too, like midwives can't support um, home birth if you're VBAC. And I mean, there's lots of different legislati- legislative um Rules. Why am I saying legislative? Look at me. I'm trying to use fancy words to impress you guys. There's <laughs> lots of different laws in different states, and 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 some of them um, are very evidence based, and some of them are, are some of some laws are are broad, and they leave a lot of room for you know, for practice areas. and variation and gray areas, right? And some are so specific that they really limit uh, a woman's option in that state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, we can have a whole podcast on the legal decision-making process and the, and the right of uh, and a, and a woman's uh, right to uh, autonomy of her body yeah. and the choices and who gets to decide. That would be, you know, I mean, you know, right now the vaccine issue is a big issue, but, but also pregnancy and restricting women's choices of these things. It, it, we could do it. If you want to do another one down the road, I, I, I would love to talk on that subject with you guys. Perfect. We would love. Yeah, I think it's your most recent episode. I mean, as of the time of this recording, man, uh, what mandates kill medicine? Is that what? Is that the name? Mandates destroy medicine. Yeah, mandates destroy on medicine. Vaccine, yeah. yeah, it's a wonderful. Yeah, wonderful I love episode. it. I was just listening to it today again. Yeah, well, it does because it makes it makes uh, physicians agents of the state. Yeah, mm-hmm. it really does. It does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, right. if, and if you give us an opportunity, another opportunity to do this with you, heck yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can just be a guest every month. Yes. <laughs> um, okay, so. Well, listen, I don't think listen, I would mind that at all, actually. We would love cool. it. Yeah. We would seriously love it. Well, we'll keep in touch. So, a couple other questions. I'm trying to see because we kind of jumped through like a few that kind of were the same. I know one asks about an overactive pelvic floor, meaning too strong, not too weak. She's wondering if that is going to affect her chances of having a successful VBAC. And do you see that a lot with athletes, like people that are overtrained and or that maybe not overtrained, but like that train a lot and like like weightlifters and things like that where their pelvic floor is too strong? I've heard of that before. Yep. 
Absolutely. Um, there's a chiropractor here in in L.A., Dr. Elliot Berlin, who also has his own podcast. Um, mm, and he yeah. talks about and you, isn't Elliot Berlin heads oh, up? Berlin. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's producer heads up. Yeah, I listened to your guys' yeah. special episode on that, too. But, yeah, <laughs> he's wonderful. Yeah. So, again, I think this is a question that just has more to do with vaginal delivery than it does necessarily about the fact that they've had a previous cesarean. So I do believe that the athletic pelvis has really affected women's deliveries. And I think that during pregnancy, we can work with a pelvic floor specialist who can help us be able to realize where the tension is and how to do some exercises that might help alleviate some of that. We have a specialist here in LA. I don't know if you guys do there, but um, that I would recommend people to. And then also, you know, maybe backing off on some of the athletic activities that that woman is participating in during her pregnancy and doing things more like walking, swimming, yoga, stretching, Mm -hmm. um, belly dancing, which was originally designed for women in labor, not to seduce men. Um, So these are all, you know, really good things to keep things fluid and soft because you want things to open and release rather than being um, so... I love that. And yeah, we, I agree. I think, I think sometimes it leads more to not generally so much of dilation, but the second, and again, I don't really, a, a, a friend of mine, David Hayes, he's a home birth guy in um, South Carolina. doesn't like the idea of using stages of labor. He likes, wants to get rid of that. And I think that's an interesting thought. Mm-hmm. We have a meeting this, uh, this November in Wisconsin. We're going to have like a bunch of thought, thought things going on over there. But, Is it going to be all men talking about this? Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Let's get more women. No, no, no. No, no. It's being organized by Cynthia Calais. Do you guys know who Cynthia is? No, She's been a no. midwife for like 50 years. In, she's in Wisconsin. She's done hundreds of breaches, she says, uh, at home. Anyway, the, the point being is that I, I think that I find that a lot of those people end up getting instrumented, like vacuums. Right. More commonly, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, so Bliss is right. I mean, if you could, if, if there, are, there are people who are very, very... The tight down there, the levators and the muscles inside are very tight, which is great for life and sex and all that other stuff. But yeah, you need to learn how to be able to relax them too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I know we're running short on time, but this was this question that came through today. I just I loved it. Said, could you guys both replicate your model of care nationwide somehow? She said, <laughs> how do I advocate effectively for home birth access and VBAC access in a state that actively prosecutes home birth and has restrictions on midwifery practice? She specifically said she's in Nebraska, but we know we hear this all over the place. Um, you know, VBAC is not allowed. You cannot birth at home. And, you know, people are like having unassisted births because, because they can't find the support. They that can't they find need. the support and they are too scared to go to the hospital or or there's not birth centers, you know. And so, yeah. The question is, yeah, what can women do in their local communities to advocate for positive change and more options in, in birth where they are more restricted? <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had a really great answer for this. I think that the biggest thing is to continue to talk out loud. And I'm really proud of you ladies for creating this podcast and doing the work that you do. But I think that we, you know, 
I always believed when we had the sanctuary that, you know, it really is about the woman advocating for herself. And the more that hospitals and doctors are being pushed by women to say, we need this as an option because Mm -hmm. we're not getting the work, I think is really important. And I feel, you know, I support free birth and I think that most of the women and men who decide to do that are very well educated. Yeah, for sure. Are really actually very surprising for midwives to see that sometimes they even have better statistics than we do. But it saddens me that there's no choice. And, Mm -hmm. And a woman who totally feel comfortable with doing that is feeling forced into that decision. So I think as women, we need to support each other, encourage each other, continue to talk out loud about what it is that we want and need and make this be a a very important decision that a woman makes. And it's a way of reclaiming her power. I'm not highly political. I try and kind of stay out of those arenas. And really, um, one of my favorite quotes from a reverend that I have been around said, you know, be for something and against nothing. And um, I really believe that that the more, yeah, the more that we, you know, speak positively and talk about positive change and empowering ourselves and each other, that it may come slowly, but that change will continue to come. Yeah. Yeah. And and I would only add to that, that I think, Unfortunately, in, in, in any country, whether it, you know, whether it's a socialist country or, or a capitalist country, it, it's the economics that drives everything. And uh, you look at countries like England or, or Amsterdam, uh, the Netherlands, you find that, that you know, they have a, a really integrated system with midwives and doctors mm-hmm. collaborating. And the low-risk patients are taken care of by the midwives, and then they can sell with doctors, and midwives can transfer from home to hospital and continue their care in that system, the national health system. You know, I'm not saying that's the greatest system for somebody who's growing old and has arthritis or, or needs spinal surgery or something like that. But for obstetrics, you know, sort of that sort of system where you've taken out liability and you've taken out economic incentive. All right. So how do you do that in our system? Not very easy to do because everything is essentially driven. One of the things that I, I've, I've always advocated for is if you want to lower the C-section rate, uh, increase the VBAC rate, be really simple if, if insurance companies, as long as they're still until we have, you know, Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, universal health care. But in, <laughs> in, in, you know, while we have insurance companies, if they would just pay twice as much for a vaginal birth and half as much for a cesarean birth. Yep. There you go. Feedbacks and breach deliveries would be something. Oh, you know what? Maybe we should start to we should be more supportive of those things because they're going to it's all about the money. But as long as the hospital gets paid more. Doctors don't really get paid more. They get it's expediency for the doctor. He gets it done and goes home. Yeah. But in the hospital, they get paid a lot more, almost twice as much for a C-section than you do for a vaginal birth. What's the incentive for the chief financial officer of any hospital to say to the OB department, you know, we need to lower our C-section rate? Now, one of the things that's happening there are there are programs there got an insurance and, and I forgot what it's called, but where they're trying in California, they're trying to lower the the primary C-section rate. There's a term for it where it's like primip uh pre-labor in labor that there's four it's an acronym with four initials but list you know what i'm talking about no no i think of the cmqc whatever but that's not the same no no, no no it's a it's an acronym about a, like a first time mom uh, we're trying to avoid those c-sections uh, mm-hmm. yeah uh, the primary cesarean yeah uh, 
Yeah, there's a, it's an acronym. Anyway, nonetheless, so they're, they're in the right direction. They're trying to lower it from the, you know, most hospitals are in the 30% range. They'd like to lower it to 27%. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a start. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the ways to really do that is to support VBAC. And, and treat VBACs, as Bliss said at the very beginning of the, of the podcast, is that we don't treat, a, a VBAC is just a normal labor. When, they, when, when people lump VBAC in with Breach and Twins, it's like, why are you doing that? I mean, yep. Breach and Twins requires special skill. But yeah, VBAC doesn't. Requires, it requires a special skill also, which is a skill of doing nothing. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and it's hard It's hard for obstetricians and labor delivery nurses and stuff like that to do nothing. But ultimately, VBAC is just a vaginal birth and doesn't require any special skill. And when a doctor says we don't do VBAC, what he's basically saying, or she, is that I don't do vaginal deliveries, which is sort of stupid because the VBAC is just a vaginal vaginal delivery. Yeah, that's true. Such a powerful point right there. (laughs) Well, guys, we loved chatting with you so much. We wish we could talk with you all day long. I would, all day long. I just want to be a fly on your walls if I could. If you're ever in Salt Lake City. Again, he just was. Did you know that? Come say hi to Adrian, but also connect with us because we would love to meet you. All right. Well, guys, everyone, all of our listeners, women of strength, we are going to drop all the information that you need to find Midwife Bliss and Dr. Stu, their website, their podcast, all of that in our show notes. So, yeah, now you can find our podcast. You can even listen to our podcast on our website, thevbacklink.com slash podcast. You can play episodes right from there. So if you don't know, well, if you're listening to this podcast, then you probably have a podcast player already. But you know what? My mom still doesn't know what a podcast is. So I'm just going to have to start sending her links right to our page. Yep. Just <laughs> listen to us wherever and leave us a review and head over to Dr. Stu's podcast and leave them a review Subscribe as well. Subscribe because you're going to love him. But don't stop listening to him yes, because you love us because you love us too. Remember right. that. <laughs> and I want to thank everybody that wrote in. I'm sorry we didn't get to answer every question. We, we tend to blather on a little bit. But <laughs> asking these important questions and Hopefully you guys will have us back on again. We would love to have you. Yep, we will. will. Absolutely. Yeah. Would you like to be a guest on the podcast? Head over to thevbacklink.com slash share and submit your story. For more information on all things VBAC, including online and in-person VBAC classes, the VBAC blog, and Julie and Megan's bios, head over to thevbacklink.com. Congratulations on starting your journey of learning and discovery with the VBAC link.